3: Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
4: And this is Praz the Sandman, injecting your veins and your ears with soothing lullabies through the radio waves.
3: You coming over the radio waves is very appropriate, Praz, because our guests actually deal in music. Whoa! See, I that. I wasn't able to get Maroon 5. They were all booked up for the Super Bowl, I'm afraid. But... We have something even better, a couple of music thanatologists, and I know you're about to ask, what does that have to do with Thanos and Endgame, and we'll get there, (laughs) but first, why don't we introduce them? Our first guest is Tony Peterson, president of the Music Thanatology Association, and a Current member of Integrated Care Services Department at Journey Care, he has over twenty-five years' experience in this field that you still know nothing about. Are you feeling the suspense yet? Welcome, Tony. Hey, thank you so
1: much for, uh,
3: for having me. And our second guest is. Margaret Bisquazy. Bisquazy.
4: Make sure it's pronounced like this at all times. At all times. That includes the The hand hand gestures. gestures. I can't see them, but I can only imagine how amazing I know. Isn't that cool about podcasts? It's all to your imagination. Mm, Possibilities are endless.
3: And Margaret, you also have just about 20 years experience in music thanatology as well, correct? All right. So now that I've avoided burying the lead, let's open it up. What is... Music
2: Thanatology. So there's that point where he snaps his <laughs> fingers and everything turns to dust, right?
4: <laughs> <laughs> so how many stones do you have to collect to do this?
2: <laughs> I cannot reveal that.
4: <laughs> so,
2: so no, I mean, Thanos is called Thanos because he's named after this Greek personification of of death, Thanatos. And it's this, it's this word that's been around... We, we encounter it in words like euthanasia, which just means good death. Now we're interested in how music can be used in support of this process of dying. That's our tie in end game.
3: This is a relatively new field, right? It...
2: I've been doing it for 25. Hopefully it's been
1: around a little bit
2: longer than him. So the, the founder of this modern kind of version started this in the, in the mid to late seventies, uh, in Colorado. Therese Shodershiker, and started then a school where she taught others this idea, but it really is based on um, some older ideas, and it really goes back to, you know, even Hippocrates. When people were getting diagnosed in ancient Greece, and, and, and they would give them a prescription for, what are you going to do with this illness that's affecting your humors, right? One of the prescriptions could be, you need to go see some theater. You need to go look at sculpture. It was understood that arts and music had this role in our house. I mean, we used to do this sort of thing. And then this founder of our field was actually encountered some medieval manuscripts about the monks in Cluny, France in about the year 950 or 11. It right, granted me the term millennium. And they were had these rules for how the community operated. And right. it was one of these situations where like your chocolate got in my peanut butter, no, your, your peanut butter got in my chocolate because what she found was that it's like your psalm got in my manuscript. No, your manuscript got in my psalm. And what they, she and this other historian realized was that these monks, when one of their brothers was dying, they would sing psalms to them. But they had certain psalms that they would sing based on how the death was going. And this is a really new idea to think about. It was just a blanket. Here's just what you do when somebody's dying. There was different things for different styles of dying that, people, you know, that we see people die in different ways. And they were, um, altering the prescription, the musical prescription based on how the death is going. And that really gets to the heart of what it is Margaret and I do at the bedside. And that's what we do is we alter this approach that we're bringing with music based on how the dying is going, how the breaths are changing, what's going on with the pulse or their temperature, or their restlessness, whatever these, these physiological parameters that we encounter, they give us musical cues about how to be present to somebody.
1: So, our practice works is like Harps nine one one, and we get called throughout the day to go see people all over our service area. So we go, you know, down by you, Josh.
3: And- I want to make sure people yes. heard that correctly. You work for Harps nine one one. Nine one one. We're kind of like Harps nine one one. You're kind oh, yeah. of like Harps nine one one. That sounds like a really soothing <laughs> exactly. cop show.
1: That's a, that's a- yes, exactly. So. We get called. Uh, so, our job, we are employees of Journey Care, and staff members of Journey Care, nurses, docs, um, whoever's making the referral will call us, the music thanatology hotline, and um, will ask us to come see a patient anywhere in our service area. And we are called because someone is having um, is either actively dying and/or having symptoms around their dying process. So difficulty breathing, having agitation, restlessness. So we get in our cars with our hearts. We drive to wherever we're going and we greet the family like everyone does. And the patient, whether or not the patient can respond to us and we let them know what we're there to do that I say, believe it or not, I brought a harp to play for you. And I'll check their pulse, because as you know, checking somebody's radial pulse can tell me a lot of information about their prognosis, if their pulse is thready, or if it's not there anymore, mm-hmm. um, can give me a lot of information about how much, you know, are they going to be with us for hours, are they going to be with us in a day or so. Um, sometimes I can get that information as well as their um, extremities temperature. Uh, we'll do the um, respiratory distress observation scale. A Margaret Campbell scale, uh, which is really helpful when someone can't self-report about their level of dyspnea. And we'll also do, um, you know, the FLAC scale has been approved for um, adults now, which is really fantastic. So we do it when it basically we do an assessment and then we'll start to play. We'll um, get the family around the bedside if there's family there. The, the chairs are facing the patient and not us. And we'll put the harp kind of at the foot of the bed, out of the eyesight of everyone. And then how we choose to play something, what kind of themes we'll play, whether it's major or minor, um, whether it's ascending melodic lines or descending melodic lines. All of that is based on the patient's presenting.
4: Process, at least the beginning part part of it can be intense and almost stressful. You know, like you're getting a call about this patient who you're not really sure just how long they'll be alive or how much time you have to get there. And do you ever like find yourselves rushing to get there or get there sometimes and the patient may not have made it? Yeah, but it's actually, you know, if
1: we get a call like the night before because we work regular daytime hours. Like we we kind of take calls from eight to six Monday through Friday. So if we get a call later, we check in the morning to see if they're, you know, are they, are they not dead yet? Is sort of the, (laughs) um, you know, the hospice humor. (laughs) He's quite dead. He's getting getting better. (laughs) There's a lot of that. And actually we've had to learn to just be okay, but trust that we're going to get exactly where we need. And the great thing about hospice is it really is all about choice. So some people, the idea of a harp by the bedside, you know, they, they're like, what? Are you crazy? It's seem like, you know, a, little a little on the crazy. nose. Um, and we are totally okay with people saying, no, that's not for me. Because what it does, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been on my way to go somewhere and then I'll get a call, oh, the family changed their minds or the family said no. And I'll go to the next person on the list and then I happen to be there with that mm. second patient when they die. So it's just this, you know, after all these years of experience, we've learned kind of like you guys have learned, we just trust that the people we need to see, um, we get to see. And the people who, you know, don't want it, it's totally okay. Like it is kind of a weird concept. You
2: know what I, so what i always find though, is that the, the calls will come in and I'll get four calls. And they'll say, can you get here right now? And I can't get to all four places right now. And so I just, you know, so you have to do this triaging, this assessment of who's in the worst shape and who's having the hardest time. And that's where we go first, right, where the greatest difficulty is. And that's kind of our role is to jump into the biggest mess that somebody is experiencing. So who's crashed, you know, or who's. Um, had a big episode
3: so how do you do that triage if you're just over the phone you can't really check the vitals there you know you have four calls right. four people who are all uh, actively dying
2: a report from the nurse and i'm and I'm wanting to hear about how is their respiration whether they're congested and, and how uh, what's their level of wakefulness you know what um, are they able to make uh, volitional movements of their limbs you know there's these things that tell us how Present somebody still is, you know. What, and the big one for us is really how the breathing is going, and that that is the best and easiest window into somebody's dying process.
1: You know, in our at our IDT meetings, what the CNA has to say, who's seeing the patients all the time, is valued mm-hmm. just as much as what the doc might be saying. So if I'm not there, I really rely on my teammates to clarify the situation. So today. I went to one of our inpatient units and of course I had a long list of people to be seen. And so we just started going through it together without me having walked into the room. And for example, there was a patient who was dying, but was really calm and comfortable and the family was there versus two patients who, were, who will probably be there tomorrow, but the family and the patient were having a lot of anxiety and agitation. And so the symptoms trumped the actively dying and in this case in the um uh, according to the wisdom of the nurses and the cnas and the doc on the team and so that's where i went
3: so the nurses (laughs) kind of helped to schedule your concert appearances almost like you are a rock star as it were
1: it's a horrible
2: concert if it's a concert
1: it's a bad we we have a great job like It's an awesome to be a musician where everybody falls asleep. I'm, I'm rocking it, you know?
4: Oh, that's my kind of concert. That's the type of concert I perform every day. Well, I was (laughs) going to say, pros as an anesthesiologist,
3: you probably have a lot in common here as you both really pay very close attention to the vitals and the physiologic response of the patient under your care. And in both cases, it's somebody slipping under, um, the only difference is, you know, whether or not it's a one-way ticket to ride on that train to Georgia,
1: all the time, all the time. I do let people know that it's okay to cry and it's okay to sleep and that they don't have to applaud for me. I mean, it's because we're not playing Bach or Beethoven or even I where was I? Um, not long ago, where somebody was like, "Oh, can you play uh, Sakura, Sakura?" You know, this this Japanese um, song and pan, but I don't go in with sheet music. You know, what I'm really doing, it's like, like a jazz trio, right? The, the, the lead is really the patient and their respiratory rate and their, um, any physiological movements that they're making. Like the, that's really the lead and I'm following that. So it's, it's very modal. Um, you know, it's not just major and minor. We're using. You know, Phrygian and Dorian and um, all sorts of-
4: I was just saying, it's interesting you mentioned that because because um, I see breathing on patients who are unconscious all the time for various different reasons, really, sort of, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Breathing is, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's a very rhythmic process. It's a involuntary process that basically happens without like consciously thinking about it necessarily, um, especially if you lose that higher function. So um, it's interesting because you could see all different types of patterns and all different types of patients, and it can lead to all different types. Yeah, of because especially
1: you know like at end of life, things become so irregular. That's Really cool. So somebody can be you know do it that that chain stokes pattern where it's shallow and then they're deeper and louder and then they become more shallow again. And sometimes they have you know periods where they're not breathing. They have the apnea, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes they don't have that. Or people who are brainstem breathing. You know, it's just yeah. rapid and regular. Um, there's there's so many different. I mean, I think yeah. that's the really neat thing at the end of life. All these rhythms, these steady rhythms of our lives that we've taken for granted, just sort, sort of, not sort of, they, they fall away. You know, the, yeah. the heart stops, the heart becomes irregular. But
2: those are really, yeah. really good avenues in to what that patient's experience is like. And so ultimately, it doesn't matter whether they like music, whether they like harp music, because we use a harp and we also sometimes use our voices. And, and those are really beside the point because we're connecting at this level of breath and pulse and rhythm, you know, and tension. And these are just things that everybody has, regardless of who they are or what language they speak, you know, or even what their cognitive abilities are. At the end of life, yeah. but we can always have an avenue in terms of that pace of the breath, and it's another way of of yeah. knowing that at this visceral level, that somebody is there with you. And you see that we're um, giving a little bit of a—it's a little bit of biofeedback, I suppose, too. I mean, there's this dance that happens between the patient's breath and the music, and it as the music shifts, as the breathing shifts, and, and vice versa. You know, it's it's a it's a really nice um, kind of tender connection. Like when I first got into this, that's what I was really fascinated with, this idea that music could affect and and connect with what's going on in the body. But then what I've seen over the years is how important that is for the families and loved ones and people that gather to kind of show them how to be present to somebody. It doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to have the right words. It's just sitting with them or holding a hand or even just breathing with somebody gets you on the page with them and that's can be really profound for people because we don't have a i think a sense of how to be around dying i think we get a lot of our ideas from movies and tv and that's not what it ends up being like when people are put in the situation and they're oftentimes a little bit lost about how to be at the bedside of somebody who's dying because it doesn't happen in the course of a half an hour you know
3: what else is going on in the room when you do these sessions? Is it just you? Are there other members of the hospice team administering medications? And how long is a session? Do you show up and play until somebody dies? So do you how come do by for January, daily therapy? I said, we've
1: got.
2: How, how is the scene structured?
1: Um, there's we don't
2: there's, actually there's no actual name. No you keep saying that, and there, people are going to think that there's a hard time. Alone.
1: That there's a car that no. has harps, and sirens. The, no. The point is that
2: we get a call, and we grab our harps, and we go running.
1: Right, right, right.
4: <laughs>
1: exactly. Like, Not the xylophone there's, again! There's the one rookie cop um, in
2: the back who yeah. brought
3: a xylophone on <laughs> the first day.
1: So, so yeah, so we get, we get calls throughout the day. It can last anywhere from a half an hour to uh, like two hours. It it all depends on what's happening. Some of our longer music vigils are when somebody's coming off of um, a ventilator. So we'll be in an ICU. um, We've actually started to do some ventilatory removal at our inpatient units, which is interesting. Um, And so those take longer because we usually start to play while somebody is being pre-medicated. So you asked about that or what's staff doing. Staff are coming in and out. As they need to to do whatever they need to do for the patient. So we've uh, played when people are being turned, if somebody had to be changed, we're still playing. Um, when somebody's coming off of ventilatory support, we um, we get the family around the bed so that they can say goodbye or anything they need to while the patient is being premedicated. And then once the patient is ready for the removal, the um, family's invited to leave or they can stay, but we stay, while the respiratory therapist and the doc does the removal, and then we continue to play the music changes. Some somebody's on a vent, you know, it's a really steady rhythm, obviously, for the respiration. That can be incredibly irregular. Some people were already dead on the vent, but we play until the patient either stabilizes or dies. For most of our visits, we come in and we're addressing a particular symptom Sometimes mm-hmm. it's the whole family. There's like another little joke in there, like you can't give adivan to everyone in the, um, in the room, but you can give music to everyone in the room. And so we might be there to help address the family dynamics. Sometimes, um, mm-hmm. you know, again, we're there for a respiratory issue or a pain management issue. Um, sometimes the patient is just fine and the family is just fine. They just want that nonverbal way to honor the, fa- the patient. Music is a great excuse to cry. Sometimes the patient will start to really change physically during the vigil. And if that happens, we stay and play. But I would say the average visit probably for me these days is around 45 minutes, usually by 45 minutes.
3: Historically, vigils were so-called because monks or knights in
2: France well sure so the idea spend is that we're, time in we're reflection just and prayer. music therapists art therapists massage therapists you talk about we're part of the integrative care services team and all the, and all of their our therapy colleagues are coming in with this therapeutic approach they have this goal of care that they're trying to reach and then you develop a plan to you know approach that and and we particularly don't have any kind of agenda like that our goal is to just be present to move alongside somebody and and to sit with them that typically involves alternating some music and some silence it's pretty restful um and so people who are very often stressed families especially you know about decisions they have to make and do we call the funeral home and do we have the arrangements and does aunt so-and-so know and there's all this stuff going on in people's heads did they give the medication did they give too much did they get not enough and blah 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 blah, blah. all this stuff going on in people's heads so this music vigil is this time that takes them out of that kind of day-to-day worry and you know all the stuff that goes along with managing you know it it takes a village really to help You know, the, this dying process and it's really stressful for people. And so we have this music vigil where all that stuff goes to the side for half an hour, 45 minutes, like Margaret said. And, and, and it doesn't, it's not so much about the music, the music, but the music does is it carves out this protected space is what I see happen. And, you know, we, I don't know what somebody needs to do to deal with their, you know, father's dying or whatever it is but I can give them some space for them to start to figure out how they feel what's going on for them or what they want to say or whether they need to let those tears out or if they just need to take a nap, you know, whatever, it's all good. And I'm just going to hold that space for them. And the music, you know, the music does that. It, It kind of puts up this little bubble of safety. Somebody, you know, like somebody will knock on the door and stick their head in because like, they're going to come in and, you know, change the garbage or do whatever, you know, like rehang a bag. And they'll be like, you know, but then they'll see and they'll go, you know, I'll, I'll wait. You know, our whole society is built on going and doing, and, you know, sympathetic response. And we don't always take this time to breathe and sit back and reflect and have some space and air a simple thing. And music does that. And it's really, at a really important juncture for patients and families. We need that and
3: we have actually seen this in a number of studies a uh, just casual glance through the PubMed archives a great place to browse papers and you can see that they have done studies where they put people both fully conscious and in vegetative states and all degrees between into MRIs and they play music for them and they track how that brain responds to music so whether or not it's the dying process there have been documented studies that show Mm -hmm. music, specifically instrumental music that creates this space that Mm -hmm. uh, Tony, you're talking about, has been shown to have positive effects on the brain, ranging from activating the reward system through dopamine to uh, calming what -hmm. can appear as seizure-like or hyperactive electrical activity in the frontal and prefrontal cortex, which are areas associated with higher planning and anxiety. So there's there's real science behind this. And I have to spend at least one moment commenting on how important and wonderful hospice is. You mentioned earlier about giving people a measure of control in how they die and how very often dying doesn't look like what we see on TV. Well, I know there's many people out there who are reluctant to ask about hospice or scared of it because they think it means you're abandoning a loved one or giving up on them. And if you've heard, you know, even what we've talked about so far, enrolling in hospice means not only do you get control you know, over main... how you die, oh, I'm but sorry. there's art, sorry. there's music. It sounds like a mortality spa which if you have to go some Is a really nice way yeah, to do I mean, it. Uh,
4: one thing I will say um, as somebody, <coughs> so a little bit more about my background as well. I'm an intensive care physician as well as an anesthesiologist. So I've um, dealt with a lot of uh, end of life situations and a lot of um, end of life care as well. Um, and for us, like, I mean, I see the other side of it, you know, I see the side of it where, you know, people are like constantly like, the ones that try to do everything, the ones that fear abandoning their loved ones and whatnot. Um, and there really is very little peace to being in a unit where you're constantly being flooded with therapy. You're constantly hearing noises tied down to beds, things like that. And it's really uh, can be fairly um, undignified. And so hearing about an option like this, a very real option where you have you can go have peace have comfort and have a place to take solace in all these different therapies um, i mean it's a very real and a very in many ways a much better way to spend that time and get the best quality out of it
3: especially in the icu so Can the you main, imagine the difference so between the main a ventilator and that a heart people have it's like classical when they sign like, steps. in the
2: hospice is yeah. that they didn't do it sooner
3: that's
2: one way to think about it And you know, the, all the noises in the ICU, they become a really interesting challenge for a music anatologist because, you know, there's those, the the alarms are meant, I mean, I've talked to somebody who is, who works at one of the pump companies in the Chicago area and they have a team that designs the alarm sounds to be aggravating. This is their job because otherwise you can tune it out. So they make these, you know, they figure it out, you know how to make these alarms know. and they don't make for a calming environment. Even sometimes even the ticking, you know, in a quiet room, a ticking clock is torture. So we have this job to help kind of palliate the whole scenario. And and so these sounds and noises come in. And part of our job Absolutely. is to kind of incorporate, Them into the music. And, you know, sometimes there's oxygen concentrators droning along, and it makes sense to figure out what key that machine is droning in. And I'm going to play in that key and make it a little softer. But I want to get back to what you said about the PubMed articles and the brain and the music. Those studies, these MRI studies where they're looking at the effects of music, they're all using recorded music, which I think is fascinating because it's great music a lot of times. And yet it is it's it's pre-packaged right and so when we play recorded music doesn't matter how beautiful it is it can't respond to what's going on in the room in fact what's going on in the room has to respond to it and so that's what we see these effects from these brain scans and these mris is that is that there's these shifts within us to accommodate what's going on with the music so we take it this one step further where the music is shifting based on what's going on to the person and i'm and i'm I'm excited to see those those mri studies when they bring us in and we're watching their breathing and uh you know and the music is is tailored to somebody because it's this is something that we don't get you know a hundred years ago all the music you heard in your life you would have been in the room when that music was being created in a car and it doesn't have like when was the last time somebody Saying just to you, maybe your mother, you know, when you were in the in the cradle, but it's just something that we don't get a lot of that personalized like music or art just for us, and that I see make a really huge difference in kind of experience at that time.
1: So, anyway, music pathology is large mouthful, and hospice kind of scares yes, the bejesus perfect. out of people because they they don't know what to expect. They don't realize that we're doing all these things to try to make somebody more comfortable. And one of the things that we do is once you know that person is not going to live anymore, when someone comes on a hospice, our goal is to have them have a good death in the ICU or in the emergency room. You're trying to save them until you know you can't anymore, but to have that be the time that maybe the, um, you know, to turn off the monitors, to turn down the sounds, the bells and whistles, mm-hmm. um, so that other sounds can come in. Um, I think it's really important. And I think, and I think our demeanor, I mean, I think that's what's so great about you guys and this podcast and um, the sense of humor that you have, because we, I think, surprise people, Tony and I specifically, and put people at ease, because we walk in and we're not, you know, I don't know what I thought a music pharmacologist would be like, very grim, probably, right?
2: Black robes, big sight.
1: Dowdy, and then and then we come in and like almost immediately we'll crack a joke and put somebody at ease, and they are so like it's just so refreshing. You
2: have to read the (laughs) room.
1: You got to read the room. Yeah, we're not we're not coming in both the silly and the and the serious. You know that gravitas and that levity that really kind of helps people realize that death is a part of life. Like it's one of the biggest transitions anyone, obviously, that anyone can experience, but it's also just a part of everything. It's also, you know, it's not you and I are going to die. Like all four of us, all four of us are going to die. We're not serving a marginalized. What? Yeah, that's true. A marginalized group, you know? And so it's the most common thing in the world and such a precious thing. Someone's, you know, everyone has a birthday, they'll have a death day. (laughs) Um,
2: and it's all good.
3: Are your services requested or provided?
2: So yes and yes. And yes, From part of this package that's explained when they enroll, they're getting explained about a lot of things, and it probably doesn't enter in, into a lot of people's consciousness. And then at some point, you know, a couple days or weeks in, and the, the patient, you know, runs into a rough spot, like we're talking about with some symptom management issues or, is getting some strained, you know, like relatives start coming in and these siblings who don't get along are now kind of in the same house and just whatever's going on. Or there's a, you know, there's a spiritual component and the chaplain is calling us in because this is going to be really meaningful. Whatever's happening, then it gets reintroduced by the, you know, the team on the scene, hospice, uh, social workers, chaplains, nurses, um, volunteers, whoever, whoever, and the docs. And then, And then it gets explained a little more in depth because we've been with journey care for, you know, 15 years. So the teams know when and how to use us and they explain it to the families. And, you know, families are often at this point where either they hear it and they're like, oh, my gosh, that sounds like the most amazing thing ever. Like, let's do that. Or they're like, that sounds a little weird, but I kind of trust you, so let's give it a try. Can they just come for five minutes? And we're, you know, whatever. We know It doesn't matter.
1: Have you guys seen Tony? Totally looks like hey. a baby.
2: Longer hair, they're flamboyant affectation. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, um, you parents bunch are of are Nothing more than the male's emergence from the grand <laughs> camouflage into the gaudy plumage.
4: Which is the first time. Yes. That was beautiful. Oh, no, Tony, Tony's even worse.
1: He's worse than Robbie Malik. Tony has long, blonde hair and blue eyes. He doesn't want to grow a goatee because then all he needs is a white robe to have people think Jesus is coming in to play the harp.
3: <laughs> you know, there's a couple families who could use a come to Jesus moment. So uh-huh. think about it. What kind of training goes into this? How does one become a music sanitologist? Is this a, a gig economy that a musician can pick up? Or does somebody who's medically trained have to then sit down and go through? Um, are there other instruments used beside the harp? What What's involved in the training for this? Um,
1: and so I, after graduate school, I went there and I, um, for two years, it was an on site program. Um, and it was a study of medicine, but specifically how different diseases manifest at end of life, what comorbidities people are having at end of life. An opioid can be kind of a staple, but you know how it all goes in and out. Of those. We kind of have to keep up with all of those changes, and not because we're administering or prescribing that, mm-hmm. but the thanatological part of our job is really helping families. Do they know what to expect? Do you know what to expect as your loved one dies? And, you know, how can we explain what might happen, what, what they might be able to expect, what to look for? Those are all things that we help provide. And then we had, you know, all the boring classes like death and dying from antiquity to the present in Western culture. And uh, let's see, it was, it, was all, it was all just fanatologically based, just weird around end of life. In addition to music like I never I had never picked up a harp before I was a punk rock bassist so I never touched a harp before going to school for music thanatology nor did I want to there's like all sorts of harp guilds and and harp groups out in the world like I had never had any interest in such things
2: but the harp ends up being kind of imminently practical for our purposes you know so So, yeah, so our training involves this music aspect in terms of, you know, we have to understand how music is built, theory level and ear training and sightseeing and all these kind of musical, technical nuts and bolts. And then a similar thing in terms of the medical situation, like she's talking about, where, you know, that anatomy and physiology and, and just these basics of what's going on in the body, because we need to understand what... A person's capacities are and what is coming down the road for them in part because it informs what how we're going to approach them musically but also because part of our job in in being around people that are actively actively dying on a daily basis i've seen hundreds of people take those last breaths and the family is not sure what to do or what they're seeing i i'm another experienced Helpful voice, not just with the music, but also with my understanding of what's happening. And 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 when I can tell somebody, here's what we're seeing now. Here's what I would be looking for. And and if these, you know, if we go down this or that path, here's what you might see in the next couple of hours. And then I get the call, you know, the next day, or I'll read the notes. You know, we have electronic charting. I'll read the notes later that night. And that's the way it happened. That was really gratifying because I know that family wasn't lost, and that's that's huge to, to to feel like you have some kind of thread to hold on to in that um, storm. It's a long answer to the question of our training. So yeah, we had this music and this <laughs> medicine. We had to have this understanding of the process, not just in the medical sense, but in a kind of a social and cultural sense. You know, part of that training was this <laughs> formation within ourselves. Down the hall. Into a brand new situation that might be another death, and it might be going in a very different direction. And I need to have left all the other stuff in that other room, and I need to be really present to these people in the next room. And that was also part of our training: of really self care and how to be present.
1: Okay, they would teach you you have to be professional and you have to leave yourself at the door to do more of this mindfulness practice, where you take yourself as you are mm-hmm. in, but you know yourself. You know that I'm tired right now. You know that you're assessing things differently at the end of the day than you would at the beginning of the day. All of these things are actually really okay and help. So for example, like I think it's perfectly professional to cry in a situation that's really hard. Um, it's not professional if I can't do my job, right? So for me, if I can't play or for a nurse, if she can't you know, do the extubation, whatever it is, you still have to be able to do your job but to be able to let yourself experience what you're feeling in that moment, I think is so precious and affirming to the family, you know, that, yeah, this is a hard situation. This is not easy. And that also helps me stay with myself when I leave that room and go into somebody else's room that I've been able to be.
4: um, I'm really glad you make that um, distinction, you know, um, because the fact of the matter is, like, every death is different. Every family is different. And you never know how certain people are going to react, you know. Um, some people might want to have the rock, to have mm-hmm. the stoic, to have the person with who is able to keep everything together. And But I do find, yeah, sort of like true. you're saying, a majority of people will respond more if they see, like, a sense of empathy, mm-hmm. if they see a sense of humanity in the people around there who are also trying to help them, you know, and it's a very valid takeaway.
1: Yes, I love that. And for some
3: Many hospitals will play music overhead when babies are born, but now there's a couple of hospitals around the country that are also beginning to play a very brief piece of music overhead when somebody dies in the hospital.
1: Yes, I love that.
2: And for some for some reason it's much easier than hospitals to get the baby music than it is to play the Somebody just died.
1: So at Journey Care, one of the amazing things that we do is when somebody is um, coming out, when the the funeral home comes to take the person's body, they're covered in a quilt. Mm -hmm. If they're a vet, they're covered in an American flag. And we we ring a bell or we'll play music that the family's chosen um, over a PA system. But all staff, volunteers, anyone who's on the floor that knows what's happening, like we don't tour through the rooms, we come out and we stand there um, as the cart goes by with the person on it, um, and families are so moved by that.
2: I feel like I should just make the clarification that you know so we've talked about some of the patients that we attend on our on our hospice inpatient units. So JourneyCare has five of those in the area. But uh, the bulk of the uh, patients that we serve are in their own homes or in nursing homes in the area or long-term care facilities. What she's describing this kind of ceremony that happens uh, when someone has died and the funeral comes and picks up the body. That happens on our inpatient units. So, you know, different things happen in people's homes.
3: Let's go briefly into one of my loves on this show, which is etymology. (laughs) And I get to intersect not only etymology, but Greek mythology. So I'm thrilled. And on top of that, I'm going to add one other layer by giving you guys another way to think of your job. You're musicians who directly influence human behavior. That's what we've heard. You respond to physiological changes. Often, you happen to be around the dying. You're basically a live-action version of the Bard class from Dungeons & Dragons. Neutral good. So let's talk a little bit about Thanatology. As you noted earlier, is named for Thanatos. God of death. uh, Who's not quite the same as Thanos. And I'll get to the Marvel connection in a moment. Thanatos was the son of Nyx, the goddess of night and the brother of Hypnos, the God of sleep. He is specifically the God of a peaceful death. He would appear to carry humans off to the underworld when the time allotted to them by his sisters, the fates, Atropos, Clothos, and Atreus had expired. So, you have already started by associating your whole field with specifically the god of peaceful death.
2: Thanos
3: from the Marvel Universe, got one more thing. it means immortality. Uh, so it is achieving immortality through peace. Uh, and then just as another fun one I like to throw in, we all know the dog of Hades, Cerberus, the three-headed Mon- monstrous beast that uh, Hagrid used to keep up in his tower. I know I'm flying fast and loose with our pop culture references here. <laughs> so Cerberus is the Latin name for the dog of Hades. The Greek name is Keberos and Keberos uh basically means spotted. So the lord of the underworld named his dog Spot.
4: Doesn't sound uh, quite as threatening.
3: Given that you've said usually you, you play instrumental music or you chant, um, you essentially create a very sort of peaceful mixtape for the dying. If you could have one particular song or psalm or music that you could choose ahead of time for your death, what would you want?
1: The Music Anatology Association National is <laughs> what we do to help people learn better, basically, or kind of get in the frame of mind for the next session, we'll actually play. Someone will volunteer to play or sing right before a session starts. And so one year, I, the help of Tony, volunteered to play and I played Stairway to Heaven. It took them about five seconds to realize what I was doing, which I didn't expect because, you know, music thanatologists are all old and grim. Uh, and it was hilarious. People had ripped out their, their phones and their but I thought it was really, it's really hilarious that I can play it on the hunt.
2: It's sort of at odds with what it is that we do. I do everything I can to avoid people making requests of of me. As I, and we talked about that beforehand, how it's not about, it's not a concert of familiar favorite songs. I think if I'm, you know, if I'm out cold, like if I'm on the, you know, on the vent and on the monitors and you can't talk to me, I think you should play all nine Beethoven symphonies. And then um it'd be a song by three eleven. Do you have a song?
1: Oh, I would totally want from Jesus Christ Superstar. Like that the, the song Gethsemane. You know, do you guys know Jesus Christ Superstar at all? When Jesus is singing in the garden and he sings Screaming <laughs> oh
3: Jesus uh, I can that's not really what we do. How do you limit me to just one song? Hmm. No. I don't know. I might go from my own personal Jesus. Da da. Reach out, touch. I'm sorry. that just that or or T Swift.
4: <laughs> Can't never get enough of T Swift. Can't
3: ever get enough T Swift. I think that brings us to the end of the hour, and I don't want to keep you from your vigils any longer than necessary. But thank you both so much for teaching us about music thanatology. And this aspect of hospice that is so so very unique and important, and I think uh, really unknown. So, thanks a lot for for coming on and teaching us. So again, uh, you both work for Journey Care, which um, in this case happens to be Chicago based. But anyone who's interested more in music thanatology, where can they find out about it?
2: So the music thanatology association website which is mtai.org and then journeycare.org is the place to go if you're a new subscriber well that's it for this week
3: as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback if you have if you'd like to support us spiritually emotionally or financially you can find links to do that in the show notes along with links to any of the sources we use while researching this episode special thanks again to Margaret and Tony, our music thanatologists, this show is produced by me with a lot of help from all of my co-hosts. Happy and travels. until next time, as always, stop happy travels, even when it's the final journey.